and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I'm here to talk to you guys on my own today about two cases for this week. I picked out two cases in particular because I felt like there were some similarities between the two of them that made them go hand in hand. I'm going to start out with the case of Aaron Hernandez. And this is a case that's got quite a bit of attention in recent years for obvious reasons. Most of the information that I got was from articles online and the Wikipedia page about him. I will go ahead and post the information onto the show notes about where the sources were for this particular topic. Aaron Joseph Hernandez was born November 6th, 1989 in Bristol, Connecticut to Dennis and Terry. His father was Puerto Rican and his mother was Italian and he had one brother named Dennis who was also known as DJ. Growing up, Aaron's family had some challenges. His parents fought quite a bit and his mother often threw his father out, but she usually let him come back and there was a lot of fighting and abuse that supposedly went on in this family, making this family life pretty tumultuous. His parents actually married in 1986, divorced in 1991, and then remarried in 1996, including a bankruptcy there in 1991, which showed that sort of there was some instability both mentally, emotionally, and financially with this family. Both of Aaron's parents were involved in crime and arrested throughout their lives and while Aaron was growing up. But Aaron's father pushed both he and his brother very hard in sports and was also abusive at the same time. Many people on the outside saw his father as someone who had had a lot of run-ins in the past with the law, but had kind of gotten his life together and was now on the straight and narrow path. But tragically, Dennis, Aaron Hernandez's father, died after a hernia surgery of complications in 2006. This was a major event in shaping Aaron's life, and his friends and family say that he took his father's death very hard and reacted by rebelling against authorities. Some say he actually never got over his father's sudden death despite the crazy relationship that the two had, and Aaron was only 16 when his dad died, so it's a very formative age for a young person to lose a parent. But as part of his rebellion... Aaron moved out of the family home and refused to talk to his mom. He moved in with an older cousin and started hanging out with a very criminal sort of crowd. Even more crazy, Aaron later discovered that his mom had had an affair with his cousin's hubby, and then the cousin's hubby ended up moving in with Aaron's mom, and this supposedly enraged the already on-edge teen. Later, Aaron accused his mom of lots of ugly things and failing to get his ADHD medication was one of those. This supposedly caused him to struggle and fall behind in school. Aaron's relationship with his dad before his father passed away was super complex. There was a lot of alcohol-fueled abuse and sometimes for little or no reason. And other times, when it was presumed the two brothers weren't trying hard enough in sports or school, he would just go at them very, very hard and punish them if he felt they weren't doing enough or trying hard enough. According to the family, Aaron and DJ lived in constant fear of their dad while also revering him. And once Aaron came to school with a black eye that was believed to have been caused by his father... His father was also known for coming to blows with the boys' coaches over coaching or training methods. It's been alleged that Aaron was molested as a child also. There were incidences where an older child forced Hernandez to perform oral sex on him, and this started when Aaron was very young, some say as young as six years old, and continued on for several years. This supposedly also deeply impacted an already angst-ridden kid and caused issues with relationships and sexuality. Now, I want to make it clear to a lot of the listeners that some of this stuff is speculation and hearsay. Obviously, Aaron Hernandez is no longer with us and can neither confirm or deny such rumors. But this is what people have speculated regarding his life. As Aaron grew up, 
he attended Bristol Central High School and played as a wide receiver, a tight end, and a defensive end while he was there. During his senior year, he was named Gatorade Football Player of the Year for Connecticut after 67 receptions, 1,807 yards, 24 touchdowns, 72 tackles, 12 sacks, three forced fumbles, and two fumble recoveries, as well as four blocked kicks. However, in 2006, it was documented that Aaron took a blindside impact hit to his head, and this knocked him out, and he had to be taken off the field in an ambulance. So this impact to Aaron's head is one of the things that people believe first created change in his behavior patterns. Some of the stats that Aaron achieved were state records, and as a result, Aaron was considered the top tight end recruit in 2007 by many sources. At that point, he was about 6'2", and he was a pretty massive kid, especially for a high school athlete. During all of this, Hernandez was popular, handsome, and seemed to be well-liked by all. He started dating and eventually became engaged to Shania Jenkins in high school as well. The two had known one another since elementary school, but unfortunately, Aaron was not a clean-cut athlete. He had his vices, and these included smoking marijuana before and after and during school and heavy drinking and partying. This is where things started to get a little bit stressful and a little sketchy for Aaron Hernandez. While he was still in high school, Aaron committed to play football for the University of Connecticut with his brother, DJ. However, the University of Florida flew in and did a hard sell that convinced his principal to let Aaron graduate a semester or more early and move to Florida to play for the Gators. By his 17th birthday... On the outside looking in, so many believe that there was no way Aaron was ready physically, academically, or emotionally for college life. His academics alone were subpar at best, but he was athletically gifted, so they pushed him to make it work. So many people saw this angry teen from an abusive childhood and a terrible family life that was hooked on drugs and alcohol to cope and questioning his own sexual identity. In retrospect, despite Gator Coach's belief that Aaron was a sure thing for the NFL, his teachers and educators ultimately believe it was a mistake to let him graduate early. Duh. Because of his inability to adjust to the rigors of college academics, Aaron had to take some basic courses at local community colleges. Others reported that Hernandez seemed distressed and unhappy. Then, you combine that with the 40 to 60 hours a week of football year-round, and you get a really messed up individual who comes to hate life as well as the game of football. It was later reported that Hernandez was high on drugs basically the entire time throughout his college career and every single time he took the field to play. In 2007, his freshman year with Florida, Aaron started three games, got nine receptions for 151 yards, and two touchdowns. Although this seemed like a pretty good start to his college football career, Aaron was benched for the season opener his second year due to a failed drug test. Surprise, surprise. Despite this small infraction, he went on to start 11 of 13 games during the 2008 season. He finished strong and went on to the 2009 BCS National Championship game against Oklahoma, helping them win a second BCS championship in just three seasons. He was awarded the John McKay Award for the nation's best tight end and got first-team conference selection as well as All-American. All of this was not necessarily peachy keen for Hernandez despite his success on the field he was known for chronic marijuana use that was always getting him into trouble and he was always it seemed on the verge of getting kicked off the team Hernandez reportedly did okay academically but was always trying to be the life of the party and took super easy classes like bowling plants and gardening and theater appreciation etc making it clear that he did not take his academic career very seriously. 
after warnings that he would not be welcomed back for his senior year because of his drug and related party issues, Hernandez announced January 6, 2010, that he would enter the NFL draft. Unfortunately, he tore a muscle in his back off-season and couldn't do any of the scouting combine drills. But luckily, he recovered in time for Florida's Pro Day and performed the combine drills March 17, 2010. Evidently, he did exceptionally well on the 40-yard dash, the bench press, and a bunch of other tight end-related feats. But NFL analysts predicted that Aaron's size would hamper his ability and predicted a second-round pick. Ultimately, the New England Patriots picked Hernandez in the fourth round. He was 113th overall in the 2010 NFL Draft. This was the same time they drafted Rob Gronkowski from Arizona. Overall, he was the sixth tight end drafted in 2010 behind Gronkowski. In the background, there was concern, and it was reported many teams had passed on Hernandez because he was considered to be a problem child. Additionally, off-the-field issues in college, rumors of multiple failed drug tests, and character concerns were rampant for this guy. And teams like the Colts, the Bengals, and Dolphins didn't even look at him because of these character concerns. In April 2010, the whole drug issue came up again, and it was revealed that Hernandez admitted his drug use and failed tests in college, so at least this guy was honest. He went straight to the heart of the matter and told them that this had been a problem with him in the past. It's also reported that he wrote letters to every team offering to drug test every other week during the rookie season. It doesn't really say anything about the time after that. But he also wrote a letter to the Patriots assuring them that he was a great prospect and they had nothing to worry about when it came to him because he was going to keep his nose clean. Meanwhile, June 8, 2010, the Patriots signed him to a four-year, $2.37 million contract with a $200,000 signing bonus, which is it's a decent amount, but it's not completely outstanding. And it's reported that they didn't hand him the customary half a million as a precautionary measure. Hernandez was also offered a bunch of bonuses to be given when he reached certain milestones and if he walked the straight and narrow. During training camp, Hernandez seemed to do well, and he and Rob Gronkowski were standout tight ends, and Hernandez ended up starting the 2010 season as the youngest player in any active roster in the NFL. This was pretty prestigious for him, so clearly he was a talented young man, and the 2010 season went really good for him. The Pats finished first in the AFC East, and Hernandez got to get some playoff time. However, the Patriots lost in the playoffs 28-21 against the Jets in the AFC Divisional Round. 2011 did not go as well for Hernandez, who, liked to under, who had to undergo hip surgery after an injury during Week 15. This was made worse by a purported jersey number trade deal where $75,000 to $50,000 was exchanged and used to finance a wholesale marijuana purchase for Hernandez's cousin. And this came out later. $120,000 was later paid back to Hernandez, according to reports on this. And then at the same time, he suffered a knee injury and a brained MCL. Despite all of this, and despite some of the earlier problems that he had, in 2012, he was actually voted a Pro Bowl alternate. His rankings were decent for 2011, but not outstanding. However, the Patriots combo of Aaron and Rob Gronkowski was getting a lot of attention, and they were considered this powerful tight end tandem together. They were garnering a lot of success for the Patriots overall as well. And many claim that these two actually revolutionized the tight end position in the NFL. By 2012, Hernandez got to play in his first Super Bowl game as well. In February 5th, 2012, he was a starter. And despite eight caught passes for 67 yards and a 12-yard touchdown, the Patriots actually lost to the Giants in that Super Bowl. But it was still a really amazing experience for Aaron because of his previous exceptional performance and because he appeared to be keeping himself out of trouble, the Patriots signed Aaron to a five-year, $39.58 million deal with a $15.95 million guarantee and a $12.5 million signing bonus. This was big time. 
Aaron had finally made it. And this was the largest ever given to a tight end at the time. I think some of it was behind Rob Gronkowski. He kind of had the higher totals, but this is still quite a bit of money for Aaron. In appreciation of being signed on, Hernandez immediately signed over about $50,000 to a charity named for the late wife of the Patriots team owner. He was kind of showing that he was a team player and that he wanted to give back for them putting their trust and faith in him. But Hernandez suffered an ankle injury and missed several weeks in the fall of the 2012 season. Despite this, he did pretty well that season and played against the Baltimore Ravens in the 2012 AFC Championship game, January 20th, 2013. This was actually the last professional football game that Aaron ever played in. And we're going to kind of get into what happened that prevented him from playing any further in just a moment here. Meanwhile, it was reported that Hernandez didn't really get along with his teammates, that he didn't seem to have very many friends in that locker room. Tim Tebow, his quarterback in college, actually tried to help him. But he actually reported as well that Hernandez was, quote, a lot to handle. Despite not getting along, though, Hernandez was known as a really hard worker, and he was also said to be an attention whore and sometimes seemed unhinged, quote unquote. By January 2013, patience for Hernandez was wearing thin and Coach Belichick threatened to throw him off the team. Coach Belichick forbid anyone from saying Hernandez's name in the locker room. Other teammates refused to answer any questions about him or walked out of interviews. And it's not really clear whether this is because of loyalty or because they just were sick of hearing about this young man who seemed to be in a lot of trouble. In the meantime, Hernandez and Jenkins, his high school sweetheart, had a daughter in 2012, and they got engaged in the same month as the daughter's birth. Aaron bought a $1.3 million home in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, where his new family lived. That is, until Hernandez was caught cheating, and Jenkins moved out, returned, moved out, kept coming back, coming and going, and was trying to make things work, but there was also allegedly some secret homosexual relationships that Hernandez was allegedly involved in. Other people claimed Hernandez came out as gay while he was in prison and that growing up in an anti-gay culture caused a great deal of anger, confusion, and frustration for this young man that manifested itself in extremely negative behaviors. Others claimed his sexual orientation issues made him angry all the time. However, his long-term girlfriend Jenkins, the same one who is the mother of his child, claims that she had never seen any indication that any of this was true and that he had never spoken about any of it to her. But during all of this, Hernandez was reportedly growing increasingly paranoid in his day-to-day life. Some say that he believed the FBI was out to get him along with other government entities. And this is all kind of a vague structure in which claims sort of came out by people that knew him and were close to him. So it's not really clear or documented by Aaron, but but it's other people coming forward later with memories that they recall of him having been paranoid. Aaron's family also says he slept with a large knife next to him and, and collected weapons for protection He also got a bodyguard in 2013 for 24-hour protection because he obviously thought he was in great danger. It was reported that he went to Coach Belichick at this time and expressed concerns for his safety and that of his family and asked for a transfer to the other side of the country, but this request was obviously denied. And by mid-April 2013, Hernandez had purchased vehicles with weapons inside, armored cars, and tinted windows because he was afraid his enemies would see him and shoot at him. Teammates also reported that Hernandez had wild mood swings and seemed super agitated, going from hyper-masculine to cuddle and baby talk about his mom. During all of this, he was said to have been smoking copious quantities of weed, drinking and using other drugs, including cocaine. Now we're going to get into some of the legal issues because it's obvious that Aaron Hernandez was a very troubled young man 
who got himself involved almost stereotypically in a lot of trouble during his NFL career and earlier than that as well. But most of the crimes that were reported about Hernandez started in 2012. He actually told his agent at that time that he got respect through weapons and that he got comfort from being among the criminal elements that he considered his true friends. He also hired close friends, known drug dealers, as assistants and had special people to calm him down during paranoid rants whenever he became jumpy in nightclubs or took offense to what others considered minor slights. But he was also thought to have a secret New England apartment where he stored guns and drugs. Hernandez's legal issues obviously didn't start with his NFL career. In April 2007, at the age of 17, Hernandez ordered a bunch of booze at a Florida restaurant where he was actually there with Tim Tebow, coincidentally enough, and then refused to pay the bill and punched the manager in the side of the head, rupturing his eardrum during this whole event. This actually ended up with an alleged legal settlement and a deferred prosecution, which means that Hernandez would get no jail time, but he would have to keep his nose clean for a certain amount of time in order for the charges to be dropped. Another event happened in Gainesville in 2007 as well. On September 30th, a male approached a vehicle at a traffic light and fired five shots into the vehicle. One man was shot in the back of the head and the other in the arm. Both of these guys survived. Hernandez was actually originally picked out of a lineup, and detectives later determined that he wasn't the shooter, though, despite this picking out in the lineup, and the witness who said he saw Hernandez later rescinded his statement. April 30th, 2011, another event occurred. Police were called for a fight at Hernandez's townhome in Plainville, Massachusetts at about 3.45 a.m., the car that Hernandez had been in earlier had actually been pulled over as well, and the police recognized Hernandez and let them off with a warning for both instances. Hernandez was not driving when the police pulled him over earlier, but they saw that he was in the car, and so they kind of cut his friend who was driving some slack, even though he was speeding, driving erratically, and doing things to indicate that he was under the influence of either drugs, alcohol, or both. Then there was the event July 16th, 2011 in Boston South End. Daniel George Correa de Brea, 29 years old, and Safrio Furtado, 28, were killed by five shots into their vehicle. Witnesses reported that Hernandez's car was in the direct area at the time. And then they also saw Hernandez in a nightclub in security footage. In May 2014, though, Hernandez was indicted on murder charges as well as for armed assault, attempted murder, and other charges. This trial began March 1st, 2017, but the key witness for the prosecution was a known drug dealer who was also known to have beef with Hernandez. Hernandez had allegedly shot this guy in the face and left him to die, and this was Alexander Bradley... Both Hernandez and this man, Bradley, claimed that the other was the trigger man in this shooting that allegedly happened in Boston's South End. Bradley claimed that Hernandez was enraged with one of the, when one of the victims of this spilled a drink on him in a club and then later killed him out of retaliation. Security cameras actually showed Hernandez in the club for about 10 minutes. He paused for a photo and left alone, looking super chill. This kind of contradicted Bradley's testimony that the two left together and there were also allegations that there was shoddy police work in this case and that there was no evidence tying Hernandez to these murders. But regardless of all this, on April 14th, 2017, Hernandez was acquitted of the murders and most of the remaining charges. But he was still convicted of illegal possession of a handgun. January 2013, Hernandez and Bradley were pulled over in the wee hours of the morning for suspicion of drunk driving. At that point, Hernandez again, much like he had done in that earlier instance, attempted to kind of pull rank and get his buddy off the hook by saying, hey, I'm Aaron Hernandez, you know, let my friend off, everything's fine. This did not work, and Bradley was actually arrested for drunk driving. Then, February 2013, Hernandez and this same friend, Bradley, went to a Florida strip club and rang up a bill of about $10,000 at this strip club. 
Hernandez got super paranoid during that time and started thinking that there were undercover cops or people investigating his earlier crimes that he was alleged to have perpetrated, and he was super freaked out. He was just getting very, very paranoid at that point, and this is where things get a little bit nuts. Bradley says that February 13th, 2013, he woke up in a car with Hernandez pointing a gun in his face. The following morning, Bradley was found in a parking lot with a bullet between his eyes, lying in a pool of blood. Now, miraculously, he survived this instance, but lost his right eye. Interestingly enough, he chose not to cooperate with the police when they were questioning him regarding this crime. And according to court records, over 500 texts were exchanged between Bradley and Hernandez, either... Evidently, neither one of them was clear on how to block numbers, but regardless, both men were threatening each other, and at this point, Hernandez's lawyer gets involved. Now, a settlement was proposed by Bradley for about $5 million. 1.5 was countered by Hernandez, and then there was another counter from Bradley for about $2.5 million. But... June 13th, 2013, Bradley says, screw this, and files a civil lawsuit in Florida court for this case. He then withdraws four days later, and then February 2016, Hernandez reached an undisclosed settlement with Bradley regarding the events surrounding that shooting. But May 11th, 2015, Hernandez was indicted for witness intimidation over the 2013 Bradley shooting because Bradley was a witness in the 2012 double homicide in Boston where Hernandez was ultimately acquitted, but he was convicted of the single charge. So that's when things get a little messy and a little like confusing because everything is sort of intertwined and twisted with some of these crimes that Hernandez was allegedly participating in. There were also several instances in 2013 in California where Hernandez was traveling for a surgery on his shoulder and allegedly his fiance called the police twice within a week claiming that he was drunk and violent and then police came out to the house and determined that Jenkins and her daughter weren't in any kind of danger and they left without any kind of further searches or questions with any of the victims or perpetrators. Then, on June 17, 2013, Odin Lloyd was found dead in an industrial park in about a mile from Hernandez's home in Massachusetts. He was killed by multiple gunshot wounds to the back and chest. June 18th, 2013, police are tipped off and a search of Aaron's house is conducted. Odin Lloyd was actually supposed to be a friend of Hernandez's, but if his relationship with Alexander Bradley is an indication of how he is with friendships... It was extremely dangerous to be Aaron's friend, to say the least. The next day, Hernandez does damage control because the media got a hold of this story, and he is in rapid damage control, assuring his coach, Belichick, and the team owner, Robert Kraft, that he's innocent and he had nothing to do with Lloyd's death. But regardless of these assurances, he is barred from Gillette Stadium, and the team decides to cut ties if he is arrested. Then, June 26, 2013, Hernandez is charged with first-degree murder and five gun-related charges in connection with this. And things go from bad to worse when the Patriots release him 90 minutes after his arrest. He was actually indicted August 22, 2013 and pled not guilty September 6, 2013. Despite his insistence otherwise, he is found guilty of first-degree murder April 15, 2016, and he got a mandatory sentence of life in prison without parole for that crime. Five firearm charges were also added when he was found guilty of those as well. Now, as far as motive is concerned, this is never established positively, but police suspect that Lloyd may have learned of Hernandez's homosexuality, or the alleged homosexuality, I should say. Aaron may have worried that his friend would out him to other people, including the media, and this was something that people speculate he wanted to keep private. After his conviction, Hernandez's release from the Patriots caused the forfeiture of about $20 million. The Patriots also voided all of the remaining guarantees and salaries on his contracts and told them that they were going to withhold his signing bonus. They got rid of all the memorabilia and merchandise. All of this was immediately removed from all sales area 
and then they let people exchange any merchandise they had previously sold as well. So the team took a pretty significant financial hit as well as Aaron when all of this went down. Aaron's endorsement deals were also canceled and his likeness was dropped from all video games going forward. All stickers, books, playing cards were destroyed. The the University of Florida followed suit. Bristol Central High School did likewise. Financially, things were a complete mess for Hernandez and he was sort of scrambling at that point to sell his assets and set aside some money for his friends and family in preparation for going to jail. April 25th, 2017, a motion was filed to vacate the murder charges and the request was actually granted May 9th, 2017, but more on this in a minute. In the meantime, Hernandez seemed strangely content in prison, according to people that knew him. It was reported that there were numerous occasions where he was punished for breaking rules, though. He was known to have sessions of screaming and banging on a cell door. But at the same time, some of the people that knew him said he had turned to the Bible and become more religious during his four years behind bars. But still other people say Hernandez continued to use drugs in jail while prison officials turned a blind eye. And while he was in jail, Hernandez was in a segregated unit. Although he was still able to kind of talk with his fiance on a regular basis, he also was able to reconnect with his estranged mother. He spent about 20 hours a day in his jail cell and was said to have been disciplined dozens of times for numerous violations of prison rules, including one instance where some baked goods were brought to him that were sent to him and he was only supposed to have one and I think he ended up unwrapping and eating a whole number of these baked goods before the guards could grab him and stop him. But clearly Hernandez was not used to the regimented prison life and the discipline that was forced upon him and this made him sort of very unhappy. At the same time though, Hernandez continued to work out and anticipated returning to the NFL. On April 19, 2017, at 3.05 a.m., five days after his acquittal for the 2012 Boston-related shootings, guards found Hernandez hanging from bedsheets from the window of his cell. He was pronounced dead at 4.07 a.m. According to medical reports, he had smoked K2. This is a drug that was associated with psychosis within 30 hours of his death. At first, it was said there was no suicide note, and the guards found shampoo all over the floor, along with cardboard wedged under the door to make entry difficult into Aaron's cell. And as if to make the conspiracy people even crazier, reports say there were drawings in blood on the walls and an unfinished pyramid with the Eye of God and Illuminati written beneath it. April 20th, 2017, investigators claimed three handwritten notes had been found. One of these thanked his lawyers and one was to his fiance and one was to his daughter. It's all pretty sad. Prison officials claimed that there had been no signs that Hernandez was suicidal and that there was no need for around-the-clock suicide watch because of that. Medical examiners officially ruled the case a suicide and they actually donated Hernandez's brain to science. Specifically, they wanted to test for chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. This is a progressive degenerative disease often found in people who have suffered repeated blows to the head. This is really found in tons of football players, athletes, boxers, etc. Some people actually disputed that this was a suicide, but others believe that it was his related chronic traumatic brain injury that caused him to commit suicide. And it was also speculated that rumors of people claiming Hernandez was gay could have prompted his actions. After his death, Boston University studied his brain extensively and diagnosed him officially with CTE stage three out of four. Reports say that Hernandez had numerous serious head injuries, including two confirmed concussions. Along with the fact that he played football from age eight, researchers are pretty positive that he suffered major brain injury that contributed to poor judgment 
inhibition of impulses, aggression, anger, paranoid behavior, emotional volatility, and rage behaviors. None of this excuses what happened and how he acted, but it can help to explain a good portion of his criminal behavior. So evidently Hernandez suffered from migraines and trouble with memory that were unusual for someone of his age. And after Boston University released its report on him, Jenkins, his fiance, tried to sue the Patriots and the NFL arguing that his NFL career caused one of the worst cases of CTE medically seen in persons in his age group. The suit was actually dismissed in 2017 because it was already a class action lawsuit in play and they had missed the deadline to opt out for this particular lawsuit. That This barred them from having an individual lawsuit for the same issues. Now... Back to the appeal on the Hernandez murder conviction of Odin Lloyd. As mentioned earlier, in 2017, Aaron's lawyers filed an appeal to vacate his murder convictions, and that appeal was granted. So according to the principle of abatement ab initio, if a criminal defendant dies without exhausting all the legal appeals, the case reverts back to the status at the beginning of the conviction. This renders the person innocent for all intents and purposes. But because Hernandez was appealing at the time of his death, he was considered innocent. This would serve several legal purposes for his fiancée and his daughter, including possible financial compensation from insurance and against the NFL to follow through on payment of his contract. However... District attorneys plan to keep the case alive despite Hernandez's death, and there was also still civil suits in place for wrongful death by Odin Lloyd's family. The appeals for this were heard in November 2018, a year after Aaron's death. The attorney staunchly argued against the old school rule of abatement ab initio, stating that Hernandez shouldn't be able to accomplish in death what he could never be able to do in life. And... March 13th, 2019, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court reinstated Hernandez's conviction. This conviction stood and the appeal became moot because the defendant died during the proceedings is what the court said. In the ruling, the court also ended the antiquated practice of abatement ab initio, ruling that it was outdated and never made sense in the first place. So, Aaron's lawyers are still appealing his conviction on behalf of his estate and civil lawsuits are still pending. We will keep you guys posted on information as it comes in on this case, but clearly it is a very, very sad case of a young man with a tremendous amount of athletic talent. Money cannot buy happiness. He had some major issues, some major anger, some major mental health issues, and just never got help for them. And it is so sad to me that someone who was so enormously talented on the playing field ended up in such tragic circumstances. Now, whether this sort of criminal element behavior, whether his criminal behavior was something that was already present in him or whether the traumatic brain injury caused it is not clear. But this case is still very, very sad. Nonetheless, there is a small child who will no longer have a father. And his memory has pretty much been wiped from sports memorabilia and from professional football, as well as his college team and his high school. So it's, it's a very, very sad case to me. And I feel a certain degree of compassion for this young man, because honestly, it seems as though there were good parts of him. He wanted to be a good person, but he struggled. And there were a lot of reasons behind that struggle. But in any case, I'm going to kind of dig into a second case that I find somewhat related. And that is the case of Chris Benoit. I got a lot of the information for this particular case from Minds of Madness and from Wikipedia and a few other articles online. I will make sure that I post them in the show notes if you want to go take a look at those yourself. Chris Benoit was born in Montreal, Canada, May 21st, 1967, to Father Michael and Mother Margaret. He had one younger sister, Lori. They ended up moving to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. He was focused, he was determined, he was intense, he was kind, he was likable, but yet at the same time he was somewhat obsessive. 
In his first year of high school, Chris started weight training and bodybuilding and then became super immersed in this. He got awards. He started doing amateur wrestling. And by the age of 16, he decided he wanted to pursue a career in professional wrestling. He was hard hitting and he was super technical as a wrestler. There was a pretty low life expectancy during the 1980s in the wrestling scene, though. This was one of the sports that had one of the shortest life expectancy. There was a lot of steroids. There was painkillers. And there was a really high physical toll on the body due to weekly performances. Chris, meanwhile, enrolled in one of the two most rigorous training programs in the industry. The one that he chose was grueling and super intense, but it also taught him a lot about discipline. He chose to be a part of Stu Hart's Dungeon Training School. This was a school that was run by sort of this wrestling legend. And it was the harshest training school in the world at the time. The workouts were punishing. There were submission maneuvers so that these guys would have to experience prolonged periods of intense pain to build up discipline. Chris graduated from the dungeon in the mid-80s and became one of the wrestling elite while working his way up through the ranks in U.S. and Japan. This is where he met Martina, his first wife, and they married in 1988, and they had two kids together. Chris, in the meantime, was helping to build the sport of professional wrestling in an era where most considered the sport fake and contrived. Chris helped to make the sport a little bit grittier, more of a situation where adults would get into and like wrestling. Chris's performance was known for its authenticity. His moves came first. His health and physical well-being was second. He had this sort of signature move that was like a diving headbutt. He used it in almost all matches. And this was about 110 matches per year. But the impact of this maneuver caused irreversible brain damage over the years. And unfortunately, athletes at that time didn't understand the impact or consequences of moves like that. This amounts pretty much to blunt force trauma to the head at least twice a week for years on end. Concussions were also a regular part of performance as unprotected headshots with metal chairs and other performance stunts were part of Chris's act. He was super into authenticity. So these things were like people expected to see them when they came to see Chris and he didn't want to disappoint them. Then the 90s came and 1998 in particular, there was a huge boom period and the sport exploded. At the same time, though, Chris was super private and he kept to himself. He was super disciplined and very professional, very conservative, didn't really have a lot of bad habits. The only one of these was his use of steroids. He was also known to do hundreds of squats to purge himself after he made mistakes in his matches. But by 1997, 1998, Chris was one of the biggest names in pro wrestling at the time. He was actually in this rivalry with a wrestler named Kevin Sullivan, whose wife on screen was known as Nancy. And she was also Kevin's real-life partner. But as the storyline played out in the wrestling matches, Chris ended up starting a relationship with Nancy in real life. Now, Nancy Elizabeth Tofaloni was born Boston, Massachusetts, 1964, on May 21st. She had a pretty modest childhood and actually ended up growing up in Daytona Beach. She got married as a teenager to her high school sweetheart and then ended up working in a state farm insurance firm. But her good looks brought her to the attention of wrestling in Orlando. There was a chance photo by a guy looking for a cover model who caught Nancy in this picture. And then she also caught Kevin Sullivan's eye and he recruited her to be his on-screen love interest. Before long, she and Kevin ended up touring the country and Nancy and Kevin ended up getting married in about 1985. And Nancy's career started booming at that time. And she was also doing some management for wrestling stars. And by 1996, that's when Nancy was working on that storyline with Kevin and Chris Benoit. And Nancy actually became involved with Chris Benoit on screen as well as in reality when they started having an affair. So Chris's career was booming while his marriage to his first wife started to fizzle due to his travel and obviously his attention to Nancy. And by 1997, 
Nancy and Kevin got divorced and Nancy switched to being Chris's business partner and stopped being on screen with the wrestling storyline. She was only behind the scenes at that point. And the two moved to Georgia, Fayetteville, Georgia. There were a lot of wealthy professionals there, actors, musicians, sports stars, and it's just south of Atlanta, Georgia. There were some prestigious schools there, beautiful areas, parks, shopping centers, historic legacy, and that's where Chris, known as the Canadian Crippler, decides to settle down, and the two, Nancy and Chris, become engaged in 1997. It's interesting, though, that Chris still called her his fiance even after they were married. But by February 25th, 2000, they had a son, Daniel Christopher Benoit. November 23rd, 2000, the two were married. So that's, you know, not too long after the birth of their son. Daniel was said to be happy, sweet, and to actually worship his father. And he was, a lot of people thought he was the spitting image of his father. He loved animals, horseback riding, and was like an outdoorsy little kid. By age four, it was obvious he was his father's biggest fan, and his father was like his hero. Daniel and Nancy often sat ringside and cheered Chris on, and they were there actually in 2004 in Madison Square Garden when Chris won the WWE World Heavyweight Championship for the first time. Nancy and Daniel joined him in the ring to celebrate, and this was just sort of a culmination of this amazing 20-year career, and they looked like this beautiful, loving family that was, and Chris was sure to be this future Hall of Fame wrestler, and it looked from the outside like nothing was bad about this, but then trouble was actually brewing under the surface. And in May 2003, Nancy had actually filed for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences and cruel treatment. She also filed a restraining order at the same time, but then dropped it and the divorce filing in August 2003. According to the paperwork, there had been threats of assault and and that Nancy had feared for her safety. Friends of theirs were actually really shocked because Chris was super mild-mannered. And right after the, the restraining order and the divorce were dropped, the couple returned to a super normal life together. And... There's some speculation as to the intent of her filing for divorce and getting a restraining order, but by this time, the consequences of Chris's life and career were starting to play out dramatically. By 2007, Chris Benoit was shooting up steroids far beyond what the normal recommended doses were, and friends were starting to die of heart failure and other steroid-related issues. This was like, I think, when the the dark side of professional wrestling was starting to be exposed. And this was a really sad time for Chris. And it was very stressful for him when his friend Eddie Guerrero ended up passing away. A lot of people say this is the beginning of Chris's downfall. And in his diary, he actually wrote letters to Eddie detailing his depression, his addiction to painkillers, and how sad he felt. He also wrote in that diary about Nancy and Daniel and how much he loved them and how much they meant to him. But by early 2007, Chris's behavior was getting super erratic. He was showing signs of depression and sort of paranoid behavior, and he thought he was being followed. So he started changing his routes to the gym and to work and the grocery store, etc. And he actually memorized 30 routes to the gym and borrowed other people's cars sometimes because he claimed he was trying to protect his wife and his son's safety. At the same time, he was convinced that he was going to be fired from WWE at any day. In reality, though, he was about to be crowned for another WWE championship. Fast forward to 2007. This is June 21st. Nancy sends a text to her friend saying she's scared and that if anything happens to look at Chris... And people just kind of played it off and they're like, you know, they seem like an ordinary couple. We don't know why she would say something like that. But by Friday, June 22nd, 2007, Chris goes to the doctor to get a supply of steroids. And when he returns home, Nancy and Daniel are barbecuing in the backyard. By evening after Daniel was tucked into bed, Nancy goes to work in her upstairs office and Chris snuck up behind her. At that point, he attacked her by a blow that disoriented her and knocked her over. 
He bound her hands and her feet and used duct tape or some sort of electrical tape to cover her mouth and then put a TV cord around her neck. And with his knee lodged against her back, he strangled Nancy. He then wrapped her body in a towel and put a Bible next to her in her office. Meanwhile, down the hall, Daniel is fast asleep. By Saturday morning, June 23rd, 2007, Chris goes back to Daniel's room, wakes him up, and sedates him with Xanax. He then strangled his son, too. Daniel was seven years old. The next two evenings, Chris was scheduled to perform in Texas for two separate wrestling shows, but by 4 p.m., June 23rd, 2007, he called Charo Guerrero and told him that Daniel had food poisoning and that Chris was running late because of that. He was actually still sitting at home in Georgia, though, and Chris tells his friend that he loves him and then hangs the phone up. And I think Charo sort of thought this was a little bit suspicious, but then, you know, he wasn't really sure what was going on and... Chris was exhibiting a little bit more depression and erratic behavior at that time, so I think people were really not sure what to think on this. But the WWE officials keep calling to check on Chris, and he is obviously ignoring the calls. Then, on the morning of June 24th, between 4 and 5 a.m., Chris sends a bunch of strange text messages to coworkers from his phone and Nancy's. He's sending messages that list his home address, where the dogs are, and which doors are left unlocked. That same night, Chris is scheduled for another WWE championship victory, but he never shows up. At that point, he had missed two shows, and the WWE decides, hey, that's enough. We're going to call the local police, and we're going to have a neighbor go out, and we're going to do a welfare check on this Benoit family and make sure everything's okay. So the Benoit's neighbor, Holly who often watched their dogs, went over to let the dogs out, and she actually went upstairs. She called out. There was no response. She finds Daniel in his blue SpongeBob pajamas. He's got a children's Bible next to him, and she sees that he's really discolored and that he's not breathing. She runs downstairs, finds Nancy in her office downstairs with her hands and feet still bound, the TV cord still around her neck. At that point, she's got to be super freaked out. She runs out, tells the police what's going on, that something really bad has happened. And in the basement gym, police find Chris's body sitting upright on a bench. He had actually taken the weight machine and turned the cable into a noose. He took the weight stack and he used it to snap his own neck. Clearly, officials checked out this scene and thought he had thought about this and he had planned this pretty significantly. Despite the fact that there was no suicide note and no clear motive, can you imagine the amount of strength and discipline that a person would have to have had to have strangled themselves with a weight machine? For 24 hours, fans start sending tributes and WWE does a tribute as well and no one knows the real story yet. But less than 48 hours later, the truth comes out. The police reveal investigation, autopsies, and this is ruled a double homicide, suicide. And suddenly, Chris's whole life and reputation is instantly called into question as authorities and fans sit by baffled at what had just happened. How? Why? Why did this man do this? He's, he looked like he was on the verge of just being this Hall of Famer. He had all this success. He looked like outwardly he should be the most happy man on the planet. So many tragic events had already happened in this industry, but this seemingly happy, successful family man and e who's easygoing and lovable with no signs of violence, how could this have happened? Some speculated that Nancy's ex, Kevin Sullivan, was involved, but this guy was quickly ruled out. Medical researchers had been investigating why Chris suffered a sudden and extreme mental breakdown. This is when the Sports Legacy Institute got involved and they were looking at long-term impacts of head injuries. They actually got in there and looked at Chris's brain and these guys actually routinely study the brains of boxers, football players, and other contact sports athletes. Now, Chris Benoit's brain was basically damaged beyond anything they had previously seen donated in these brains that they'd looked at. 
So considering a lifetime of brain injuries, unprotected hits, blows and collisions from wrestlings, fists, chairs, etc., Chris Benoit had the brain that was equivalent to an 80-year-old dementia patient. His ability to function anywhere near normal was completely baffling to researchers as well. And at that point, it was sort of a confirmed belief that Chris was not of sound mind. And there have been a ton of conspiracy theories since then. The most crazy one is this infamous Wikipedia entry that 14 hours before police discover the bodies of the Benoits in their home, someone had actually edited Chris's Wikipedia page to say that Chris wasn't at the show due to Nancy's death. But it was later discovered that this edit came from someone in Stanford, Connecticut, where the WWE headquarters were located, but it was a fan and that it had, they had fan had written this as a joke. Other theories included that Daniel Benoit had this sort of fragile X syndrome that had stunted his growth and caused physical deformities and intellectual challenges, etc. Some thought that Chris Benoit was actually using drugs to help his son and had accidentally overdosed him, but this was ultimately discredited as well. They also looked at Chris's steroid use and determined that he was using about 10 times the average amount of testosterone and that possibly there was some roid rage involved here. When they looked at the sedation of the son, the Bibles, all this, they kind of ruled out the roid rage theory Head trauma ultimately was blamed for Chris's erratic behavior and his inability to think clearly because he was exhibiting some serious, extreme, paranoid behavior. Since the deaths of the Benoits, Chris Benoit has been stripped of all of his wrestling titles and awards, and the WWE has actually removed all footage and mentions of him from the archives. This incident really exposed the ugly underbelly of professional wrestling and the injuries, the welfare of... Now WWE, I think, looks at it a bit differently. The discussions have been had about head injuries and head trauma injuries are now being studied pretty extensively. Sports leagues as well now have concussion policies since about 2012. Now researchers are starting to look at the causes and studying brain trauma and looking at what causes it and what they can do to help and prevent this. But in the meantime, memorial services for Nancy and Daniel were held July 14, 2007 in Daytona Beach, Florida. Both of the two were cremated and there was a very small service. Those involved now firmly believe that head-related trauma actually caused this whole thing. And they're looking at the behavior that was leading up to this. A little bit of information about traumatic brain injuries, and I found most of this on TBI.com. Every year, there are approximately 300,000 sports-related traumatic brain injuries that occur each year in the U.S. Football, hockey, and boxing are some of the most impacted sports. Traumatic brain injury, or TBI, is the leading cause of death in sports-related accidents. One study actually related that the force of a head injury from an impact in the NFL is 98 times more powerful than the force of gravity. That is pretty intense. Many of the players that are suffering some of these injuries in college and younger are not being properly evaluated and are actually encouraged to return as soon as possible. This jeopardizes full recovery and prevents proper healing and care. Researchers now believe these sorts of head injuries are similar to damage seen in severe cases of dementia. And some of them actually make these athletes more vulnerable to Alzheimer's, which is a terminal form of dementia. Surprisingly enough, 61% of NFL players have gotten concussions. Researchers believe 16% of the people with head injuries from these sports have long-term damage related to those head injuries. In the meantime, scientists are trying to study as many ways as they can to make the helmets safer for the players and to sort of minimize the impact of head collisions between players that may create these brain injuries. Now, clearly, this did not come fast enough for Chris Benoit or Aaron Hernandez. In any case, we are going to go ahead and wrap the podcast up for today. I chose these two cases because they were similar. I chose these two cases because these two men had much in common. 
both men rose to the highest heights of their sport and both men came crashing down when traumatic brain injuries caused anger, paranoia, dark thoughts, and severe mental breakdowns. Both men were well-liked. Both men worked hard to get where they wanted to be. Both men had loving families behind them when they took their lives, and both men created violence for no apparent reason. Both men suffered through extremes in life, and both men coped with their emotions through punishing their bodies. Both men hid their true feelings, and neither sought out mental health assistance. Both men were failed by a system that was not equipped to deal with their issues, and both men ended their own lives, as well as those of others. There are so many similarities between these two men, and only a few differences. If only someone had seen the problems approaching... If only someone had helped these two men. The system failed them because no one knew they were suffering. They both appeared to have an idyllic life with lots of money, success, and fame. No one guessed the ultimate price that would be paid for those privileges. One can only hope that these two have finally found peace and that we can learn something from the story of these two men's lives. Once they stood at the top of their sports, but everything has been stripped away because they were not equipped to deal with the damage done to their bodies by their hard work. Science and research have advanced since these two men ended their lives, but it has not come far enough. Much more research, careful planning, and caution is needed to prevent this kind of damage and the dark history that it has created. Rest in peace, Aaron and Chris. We remember you for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this is the point where we say goodbye for now. So long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We're at the podcast at gmail.com. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye!